We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All right, we're, we're entering the home stretch of our, of our course uh, of causes and manifestations of rejection. Today we are starting from Ayah 114 of Surat Al-Baqarah and if I can overcome my computer literacy, I will take us to that screen. Oh, here it is. Okay, very good. Okay, <clears throat> so so we've seen a number of ayahs related to uh, to tribalism and causes of tribalism as well as consequences of tribalism, including splintering of of, of tribes. Now, a slightly different change of subject, ayah 214. So this, uh, uh, consider the... Uh, 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 the the first line, the transla- the first words, the translation here says, "Who is more unjust?" So, waman adlamu is basically saying, you know, who is more of an oppressor than the following? So, we're saying the following is one of the worst oppressions. The one who prevents uh, the the one who prevents the name of Allah from being mentioned in his mosques. Miman mana masajidillah masajidillah. Okay, so, so he is, who's worse than the person who's preventing the name of Allah from being mentioned in the mosques of Allah, in the masajid, and strives for their ruin. Although it is not for them to enter except in fear. For them in this world is disgrace, and they will have in the hereafter a great punishment. Why, what would be possible reasons why why a person would prevent people from entering the masjid other than quarantine um, or uh, preventing the name of Allah being mentioned in the masjids? What could be possible motivations for this? I mean, first, let's start out easy. Let's start out with the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in Mecca, in Medina. So what would their motivation be? Easy question. Is the chat box? Yeah, chat box is running. Yeah, so essentially hoping that the, the message fades away, which means that they're perceiving the message to be a threat. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? I think uh, also when it's activism. Explain. When, um, if there's a revolutionary threat, organizing against power, then they want to keep you from congregating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, congregating being the key word here. That um, <laughs> that uh, a place of congregation would naturally be the house of worship. And, and, and so commonly when I'm speaking in interfaith circles, the point that I make over and over again is that our responsibility as people of religion, especially the religious leaders, is to be the conscience of society that our responsibility is to call out the injustices in society. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? In a different capacity, that's also the role of the journalists in society, that they have to draw attention to, to, to the, the misconduct of, of government. And likewise, as the voice of, 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 of morality and belief, that's the responsibility of the people of religion. And if we get co-opted, by power, then that's one of the worst things that can happen to, to, to society. So congregation is a big thing. Uh, this is uh, when you go to Jummah at a place like the Masjid of Al-Azhar, what is sitting outside on the street? It's literally this whole military van full of a bunch of young guys ready to come in if, if the need be. Uh, what else? What are other reasons why, why the name of Allah would be prevented Musab says they were narcissists and they were jealous of the Prophet, peace be upon him, because he was from Bani Ismail. So here it could be that we're speaking about the, the Quraysh of, of Mecca, and those people would also technically be Bani Ismail. And this could also be the, the people of Medina. I don't recall, uh, uh, and I could, I could just be drawing a blank, I don't recall 
narrations of of the Jews of Medina trying to shut down the masjid. Uh, the closest I can think of is Masjid Dirar, which is this this other mosque that was basically formed. It was a mosque, a masjid, but the goal was to cause sedition. But what else? What are the other possible reasons? I think the big one is 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 to do, is to prevent the congregations uh, um, of potential Russian revolutionary people. So, quick quick question: Would you say that um, this is, you know, literal in the sense that they don't allow you to go in, and they want to destroy the houses, or is it? Are you taking this as a kind of over-regulation, so that they can't openly discuss and work out the implications of their faith? Uh, I, would, I would suggest potentially both. You know, uh, I, I would definitely include both of these. One is blocking people, right? And essentially the point that I'm leading to is to keep full control over religion. You know, to keep full control over the discourse of religion. And, and so, so any any modern nation state will have its own version of each of the big religions you know so the easiest example would be saudi arabia where people often call uh, a theocracy i tell people it's more in my understanding it's more of a monarchy with a state religion and and so so who are the scholars that would be elevated in the kingdom those scholars whose conclusions meet the approval of the king right who are the scholars in egypt that would be elevated those scholars whose conclusions meet the approval of, of the dictator. And so, so uh, yeah, and so what that often means is that the underdog, how does the underdog get subverted? How did the oppressed class get subverted? By way of theology. You know, you are poor because Allah loves you, right? How, how often do we teach that if Allah loves someone, he makes them suffer? Oh, you're suffering? That means Allah loves you. And so you're subverting the whole impulse of justice in in a in a, in a religious community. And so, yeah, I think uh, related, Dr. Mahant, you're, you're the second point. I'm definitely including the first point, just blocking people and controlling that access, uh, but also controlling the conversation of theology and elevating certain schools of understanding. I mean, who was it? Uh, those who, uh, with, and maybe yourself, or those with more knowledge of the subcontinent politics. Uh, I think uh, Nehru, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, used to praise the Bleijamat, you know. And when we look from, you know, a political perspective, those guys are, are the ultimate quietists. We can't even call them pacifists, they're quietists, right? Their whole focus is, okay, we have to pray and memorize suras and such. And so, what is the goal in both cases? The goal is to control power. But the, so, it's, the same, it's the same happened in Egypt too, right? When the Azhar, uh, in yeah. Azhar 1930 or something, when, you know, the Jamae Misr came out, uh, Dr. Rashid Taha or something, I forgot the name. Um, you know, he was, he ha, he's, he's the modernist on his time. And he actually kind of like, the Azhar, even the Azhar student is actually going away from Azhar and joining those people in the suit. Um, because they're kind of like getting away from this tradition of traditional knowledge of ulama. They're, they're kind of why, away too. Why would, uh, why would the government care about that? Uh, I think you're talking about Rashid Rida and uh, Muhammad Abdu, but uh, I'm, I'm missing the point. Uh, what's the connection between, you know, power caring about those people? I, I think that when, when the religion has become more traditional, close to the tradition, or it's become a tradition, then, then, then the, the majority is looking for a change. Mm -hmm. And like try to align with those actually is speaking or simplifying the religion on that specific time and the challenges on that time. And then finally, state get into, you know, if they start with state, I don't get into the middle, they're actually citing the traditionalists for the, for the first phase of the, that, uh, you know, uh, jihad by a column or you know the war from by the pen but then I, down the road the, the whole psyche of the government and the, the philosophy of the, the governance has been changed 
and adopt the same modernist methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I understand that line of reasoning, but I think the same thing that you're saying would especially apply in the 60s when Nasser takes over Egypt and he does a couple things. He also takes over uh, uh, Al-Azhar itself. Al-Azhar up till that point for a thousand years was run by an independent endowment and then Nasser makes it part of the government. And they were especially monitoring, you know, what's taking place at, at Al-Azhar, right? And so they right. take in Sayyid Qutub and execute him and such. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah I'm, talk, I'm, talk, I'm telling about the timing of uh, maybe the years I'm off it, but, you know, the Mulana Abdullah, Ubaidullah Sindhi's time. I mean, that is the time when he was in Al-Azhar and he studied into that Jamae Misr, Jamae Egypt. And then I think the, the name of the professor is Professor Taha. And then Professor Sarwar Hussain from India on that time. There's no Pakistan on that time. Uh, mm. He and the, um, and the Ubaidullah Sindhi came back uh, from Azhar and they went to the, the Makkah. He spent 26 years over there and then he wrote all this, you know, the papers and all these things. Yeah, and then came back to Pakistan. Oh, I mean, mm. yeah, on that yeah. time. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, beyond my, my, my realm of knowledge. But again, the, the point being that power knows the power of, of religion. And, and so it's often in power's best interest to keep that under control, right? So many, many Sufi texts will often begin uh, in the same way many, many Hadith texts will begin with the Hadith of intentions. Many Sufi texts will, will begin with that narration. You know, the, the, best scholar, the worst scholar is the one who visits the prince and the best prince is the one who visits the scholar, right? And then they'll, they'll go into explanations about, about what does all of that mean. And so this is another wrong thing that, or another manifestation of kufr. And so this is coming in our language at the level of government. You know, there the government structure was much, much, much looser. Um, but power itself is a cause for kufr. That power has in its best interest to sustain power is to keep control of those different aspects of society, especially religion itself. And then those who are in power what does it say? That they should not enter the masjid except in fear. Okay. Now, should you and I all uh, enter the masjid in fear? We should enter in fear. We should enter in hope. And we should enter in respect of the masjid. But the, 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 the connotation about people who are in power is that they should be entering in fear. And that is also sometimes extended to their relationship with the ulama. It should be that it should be a level of respect to them, as opposed to subverting them and controlling them. Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, if that place is in power or is, is under control, to Allah belongs the East and the West. Okay. So, so my, so one of my, you know, uh, conjectures about the rise of the Sufis, the rise of the Sufis is that it allowed them to be Muslim without being in the government's uh, apparatus of Islam. And often through the form of what we, in our today language, we call unions or guilds and, and such. But remove all of the language, give it different vocabulary, and still you're practicing uh, your Islam separate from the control of, of governance. So, uh, I like this, this part of the ayah. Wherever you turn, there is the wajah of Allah. Wherever you turn, there's the face of Allah. And think about it this way. One way is wherever you turn, you are facing Allah. Okay. And now think about when you're when you visit someone and they open the door, think of the difference between scenario number one, which is a normal scenario, they open the door and they greet you. Scenario number two is they show their back to you. Okay. That the, the scenario number two seems actually kind of jarring. And so so a way to read this is wherever you turn to Allah. Allah is welcoming you. Okay. So, as you and I know, the entire masjid, the entire earth is a masjid. Okay. Now, another cause or manifestation of kufr is these theological, baseless theological claims. We've talked about them before, right? We're not going to enter hell except for a number of days, or we're going to go to heaven and no one else is or no one's gonna to go to heaven except for uh, uh, us and this other group. So here's another one. 
they say Allah has taken a son. Now, this is not speaking only in the context of Christianity, but uh, uh, naturally we would assume it. But look at the responses that are given. First response is subhanahu. Explain that response or try to make sense of it. Like when do we say, so one easy part of it is when do we say subhanAllah versus alhamdulillah versus la hawla wa la quwata illa billah? Anyone? So this is in the context of, oh, subhanAllah, what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So why, what is the, the, the point of saying subhanAllah? Yeah, amazement. Like this is such a preposterous statement on its own. Good. So, I mean, the general, the general principle, this is not a hard and fast rule, is when you say Alhamdulillah, when you hear some, something good. Okay. Of course, you can say Alhamdulillah for everything. You know. uh, when you say SubhanAllah, when you hear something surprising, and it's perhaps negative. Okay. Um, when you say La hawla wa la quwata illa billah, when you hear some horribly bad news. Okay. That's the general principle about those exclamations. But what does also subhanAllah mean? SubhanAllah is basically saying that uh, whatever is the highest level of something, that is where Allah is. That's subhanAllah. And so, so what we're saying here is that if you're saying that Allah is taking, has taken a son, you're assigning something that is beneath him. So at one level, it's a statement of, of amazement. You know, this is such a preposterous statement. And at another level, it's also saying this is beneath what Allah does or need to do. And next response, to him belongs whatever is in the heavens and the earth. How is that a response to the claim that Allah has taken a son? And you can add all are devoutly to him, but whatever belongs, whatever is in the heavens and the earth belongs to him is in the Christian theology, like in our theology, one thing we emphasize is that Allah controls everything, right? In general, and, and, and it's so general that I'm almost being too simplistic, in general Christian theology, what is the scenario? It's God versus the devil. Okay? That there are things that are outside of the control of God. If you take everything to a logical conclusion, even in Christianity, just like in Islam, just like Judaism, Allah controls everything. Okay? But the point here is that there is no need for him to have a son. So first response is it's beneath him. Second response is that there's no need for him to have a son. Third response, everything is devoutly obedient. So what are we saying here? That even the disobedience of believers is also obedience to Allah's will. And then what do we have after that? He's the one who made everything. He's the creator of everything. So what is one of the central elements of the Nicene Creed? That that the Father and the Son are co-eternal and they are creators, right? Because a point we made before is the debate in in uh, uh, Islam, you know, is the Quran created or uncreated? That is coming from Christianity, and the debate in Christianity was the same. Is the son, what's the relationship between the son and the father? So here, Allah is the one who originated, the, which means he would have originated the son as well. The son is not co-eternal. And then, whenever he wants, whenever he wills for something, he only says be, and it is. Why in Christianity is the son brought forth? Anyone? What is the function of the son? Salvation, right? It is to provide redemption for humanity. And, and so what is the approach in our outlook? Okay, you ask for forgiveness. That's, that's your path for redemption. Okay. And so here, he only needs to say be, like, you know, this is no effort for him. Nevertheless, uh, what do you think about the notion that, that the Trinity is monotheism versus the notion that the Trinity is shirk versus the notion that tr- the Trinity is kufr? What do you think? 
and I'm asking, you know, you know, how do I feel about this? I'm saying from an academic Islamic perspective. So first question, is the Trinity monotheism? I'd like to hear from Mahan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely monotheism. It's definitely. Uh, uh, very rarely will you find a Christian that will say that it is not monotheism. You know, very rarely will you find a Christian for whom the Father and the Son are separate. For a Christian believer, it is absolutely monotheism. Okay. Thus, when we speak of the monotheism of Islam in English, in, in this type of language, we often call it radical monotheism. Okay, so next question. Is it shirk? Sure sounds like shirk to me, doesn't it? And is it kufr? Potentially. I mean, there is an ayah which you can potentially say applies and you can potentially say it doesn't apply is that those people have done kufr who say Allah is the last of, is the third of three. So I'm saying at the same time, it is monotheism and at the same time, it, uh, it is shirk. So Musab, exactly, that, that's, uh, uh, that is exactly your question. Uh, because in a Christian's mind, it is one God. Okay. So in a Hindu's mind, for example, it's not one God. Okay. You know, the different gods. Uh, you know, depending upon what level of caste you're at, they may be monotheists in the way we understand monotheism. But the point I want you to consider is that for a Christian, it is wholeheartedly monotheism. But we are still saying that it is potentially kufr, especially if, it's, uh, if they are recognizing the message of Islam. Uh, Christians mentioned that the Trinity is three ways of thinking about one God. Possibly, it's very hard to find a satisfactory explanation of the Trinity. Usually Muslims give better explanations of the monotheism of Islam than, than Christians do. And, and, but essentially in Christianity, the Father and the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit are one, inseparable. Okay. And if you try to explain it beyond that, um, it starts to make less and less sense. Okay. And thus, you know, many Christians will leave uh, Christianity some of them will go to Islam, some will go to other paths and such, and will argue that, yeah, I can't reconcile this as monotheism. But I'm saying from in terms of Christian doctrine, it is monotheism. We don't worship monotheism. Why elevate the concept for Christians? The whole concept of the Son of God is so that we can understand God. Um, uh, Abdullah, I'm going to ask you to, to expand on that further. Uh, and Iqbal, I'm not understanding uh, if you're uh, I'm not understanding some of the words. What's non-sensual? Um, um. it, it just seemed to me that um, uh, we're all up in arms to defend monotheism, but which is a concept. Uh, it just seems as if we're not right now. We weren't defending defending God, for instance. Uh, it seems to me that's a mistake. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a very, very important qualification you're giving, right? So if a Christian asks, and I'll ask this primarily to Abdullah, but to everybody, if, a, if someone asks, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Abdullah, how would you answer that? What do you think? Uh, yes, uh, they just understand. <laughs> yeah, I would say yes and no. I would say it depends upon what attributes we are speaking about. If we are speaking of the one God who is the creator of all, yes. If we're speaking of the one, like Iqbal says, the one to whom Christians to speak of as the father, that in my understanding is the one that we do not call the father, but we speak of as Allah, right? Rabb. But if we're speaking from the perspective of the son, then no. What do you think, Abdullah? Make sense? Or for you. Yeah, sure. Okay, <clears throat> so, so again, in this context, 
we're speaking of this as a cause or manifestation of, of rejection. And what is the, 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 the problem here? It is adding things onto Allah. And thus, speaking of Allah at a level beneath, uh, beneath what Allah Ta'ala is, and not appreciating that he owns everything and everything is easy for him. Even think about this, I mean, this is literally the type of thing you would find in a theological speculation uh, textbook. When Allah Ta'ala is saying be and it is, okay. are you and I understanding that he is saying be? Uh, like he's saying kun and then things happen? Or is it uh, just to illustrate how easy it is for Allah Ta'ala to create something like the universe. That would be theological speculation. Okay. Meaning, what does that mean if it means something beyond what the words say? Okay, next point. <laughs> just a, one quick thing before we, if you can stroll up. It just occurred to me, one more. Yeah, the ayah number, um, could you read that in purely like Arab tribal terms? So why did they used to have sons? You know, uh, they needed sons to continue their progeny and also for strength in the tribe. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a, um, an incapacity or a deficiency that the sons make up for and then to carry on your name. Mm -hmm. And so Subhana. Subhanahu, who he he doesn't have that kind of deficiency, which I think you already touched on. But then Lahuma fis samawati wal ard, your sons were your property, uh, like slaves, at least until they were grown up and independent. And so, you know, uh, God already owns everything. In that sense, the whole universe is already his his child or his his children. And they are all are obedient to him anyways. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if it has that kind of a ring to it. I think that the, works. Yeah. You know? uh, that's the same thing I'd say, you know, hold on to it as a hypothesis and see. But I mean, that, that works for me. I think it, it fits very well. Yeah. Okay, next point. <laughs> um, it's those people who are raising questions. So here is the demand for a miracle. Those, I love the way this ayah begins. Those people, those people who don't know anything are saying, why doesn't Allah tell us speak to us? You know, or why doesn't he send us a sign? And then what does it say after that? People like this spoke before them. Their hearts are all the same. We have given signs clearly to people who have yaqeen. So, they're asking for, you know, why doesn't Allah, speak, Allah tell us speak to us? What is the response here? Why doesn't Allah tell give us a sign? What is the response that is being given? And now that, you know, I have my water, I can take my gulp of water to give you a moment to try to answer before I finish my gulp. Anyway. What seems to be the response? Silence. Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, the signs are everywhere. Your eyes are just not open to it. Your ears are not open to it. And exactly, so like what Sadia is also saying, that okay, the signs have already been shown. And people who talked before even looking. Yeah, that's, that's, that's also a nice point. When I hear that, I hear the voice of, of a school teacher. And so, so uh, yeah, exactly. The point is that the signs are already there surrounding you. Everything is a sign of Allah. You just may not choose to see it that way. You are choosing to be blind. So uh, Anani typed something in Arabic, and it's in tiny, tiny print for me. Oh, so anywhere you turn, there is the face of Allah. Yeah, it's just the ayah that you that's already done above that. Wherever you turn, there are the signs. From Wajhullah to me is Ayatullah. They're one and the same. Very, very nice, mashallah. Yeah, so this is the point. Someone is saying, why doesn't Allah speak to us? You're the one who's choosing to be blind. It's there everywhere.
The second point we made before, uh, this might have been in the first course, that the ethos of the environment is that everything in the environment is making da'wa ilallah, is calling us to Allah. Look at me, whether it's a blade of grass or a lawn or a tree or a cloud or even your hand, look at me, appreciate my wonder, appreciate my complexity, and thus appreciate the creator of me. That is the ethos of our environment. And so moving from Islam to Iman to Ihsan, uh, think all the way back at the, in the first course where we did the, the leaf exercise. Y'all remember the leaf exercise? Some of you are like, oh, I don't remember. So this is, uh, yeah. And so you're walking down the street, you see a leaf falling from a tree. First thing that comes to mind, most people say autumn. Yeah. Especially if you're coming from an environment where you have four seasons. And so you've been socially conditioned to see the leaf as an ayah of autumn. As you get closer to Allah, it shifts. It doesn't necessarily depart from being an, an ayah of, of, of autumn but it becomes an ayah of Allah. It reminds you of Allah. And then the fun part is they get closer. This is the field of hermetic philosophy. It becomes communication from Allah. Dun, 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 dun. Not wahi though. And I have to put that ex ex uh, ex uh, uh, disclaimer in there. Right. So, so the point is that that is already surrounding us. And so, uh, uh, answering this point, we have sent you, Muhammad, at, with the truth, bringing good news and warning. Jim. And you're not going to be asked about the companions of the hellfire. This, I think, is, is a pretty, it's already a heavy hit on those people. And then it's a real big slam uh, against the people who are sort of choosing to be dumb. This we can also read as a summary of everything that is above. Your job, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is to give the message. If they reject, that is not on you. And thus, by extension, our job, collectively at least, is to give the message. If people reject, that is not on us. And then another passage about tribalism. And this is something that people often quote in, in various contexts in our world today, that the never lun. Jews and Christians will never be happy with you unless you follow their milla, their religion. And so the response to that is the guidance of Allah is, is, is the real guidance. If you were to follow what they have shared after you have knowledge, you have no help coming from Allah. You're basically abandoning help from Allah. And now, finishing off this section. Okay. Those to whom we have given the book, they recite it with its proper recital okay. and its belief in it. So we started this section with wrong things people do with the book, with the scripture. And now what is the right thing to do with scripture? It's believe in it. Okay. And then by extension, we would extend from tilawat to qira'a, to actual reading and recitation, and then from there into tadabbur, reflection, and such. And then the opposite is rejection. And the rejection will be, the those who reject will be the losers. And finishing off the whole section of Bani Israel, starting from ayah 4, we come full circle. Ya Bani Israel, so remember the favor I favored you with and preferred you above all the worlds. And again, prepare yourself for the day of judgment. Have taqwa regarding the day in which no one can stand in for anyone else, nor will there be compensation, nor shifa, nor will you be helped. And that completes course number three. Don, don, don. Any questions? Thoughts? Reflections? Dead silence. So, so treat of this completion of third is the Ahmed Afzal class tomorrow? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> so, 
Just a reminder, uh, so Ahmad by now, I think he, has sent out the Zoom details. Yeah, Mahan? No, just on the Milla, I mean, that's yeah. a big, uh, we kind of. Um, yeah, I think I got too, too hurried. Let's finish this. We're almost there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, and that's an important one because of the Wala and Bara. Mm, yeah, talk about this. You know, what does this mean that the Jews and the Christians, who are these Jews and Christians? Mm. Uh, how does this we supposed to think about this today um and what is really milla here what are your thoughts and reflections on this no no i just have questions mm-hmm. how would you distinguish distinguish between milla and deen yeah so it's different word from deen it doesn't say mm-hmm. So Milla, I often associate more with the ibadah, the acts of worship, whereas Deen is more almost like this ontological system, which includes the law. And, and so we still uh, have the, the ongoing question of when we're speaking of, of Yehud and Nasara, this is applied to modern Christians and Jews. And I'm always cautious about that. Like I mentioned yesterday that the the only term I'm somewhat comfortable with in the Quran to speak of modern Christians and Jews is Ahl al-Kitab. But here I presented this not so much in the concept of Christians and Jews will never be happy with you, even though that's how I translated it. It's, uh, I frame this more in the context of tribalism that part of the nature of tribalism is you're not going to approve of another group unless they become like you. But I feel like you have something processing there that I want you but, to share. Would like, would we, would we say the same in reverse about us? Like we would never Absolutely. be. Absolutely. I think we'd say the same thing, wouldn't we? That, uh, uh, you know, uh, would I say with comfort, you know, that, yeah, Allah Ta'ala is cool with Christianity, cool with Judaism and such? No. So how, how does, is this a kind of clash of civilizations? Was, mean, Sam, was Samuel Huntington right? <laughs> no, I was, I don't know if I want to. I mean, if we frame civilization as a team, and I think to some degree it is a team, you know, um, then it, uh, I mean, part of the imperial project, whether we're talking about the Europeans or, or Muslims, you know, whether we're talking about England or the Umayyads, is, is this notion of civil, you know, either we can use the term civilizing people or guiding people, bringing them into light, you know, the case of the Inquisition, giving people grace. You know, if we look at everything through a secular lens, then it seems like a lot of those things are the same thing. So what is, what is the shape of the, the modern Islamic civilization would be? You mentioned the Umayyad and Ottoman and all this, but, but are, if, the, if, the, if the coming days, the Muslim, the future state of the Muslim civilization what would be the shape looks like? Okay, so no, you're not only modern, you're talking about some ideal uh, hypothetical one, correct? Right. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's not going to be, we, it's not going to be the same as past, right? Mm-hmm. The, if the future state is not going to be the past state, right? It should be some, some other shape and form of the civilization. Well, I think the, the deeper question that I'm wrestling with, which is in these questions is, is it possible to have uh, a polity or a society that doesn't want to spread, you know, uh, especially if people are feeling charged by religion. So an easy example is Erdogan, you know, uh, I think it looks very clear like he is positioning himself to be a Khalifa, whether or not he uses that word is, is, uh, is, uh, is questionable, but I mean, it seems as though he definitely has some sort of expansionist ambitions. You know, and I think this is true for, 
for for a lot Erdogan or Erdogan. Yeah, it, it, when you talk to to Gulen followers, they'll just say this is pure Erdogan um, propaganda. Uh, Adnan, you raise your hand. Well, the the Erdogan thing is uh, it's uh, brings back memories of early twentieth century uh, South Asian romance with the Ottomans. Uh, that, that's not my point. Uh, the Milla and the Dean. Uh, is a, it is in fact a difficult distinction. I'm reading uh, early 20th century Indian literature just on that point. What is the difference between Milla, Deen, and Qawm? And what is being said is that Milla is focused on the religious side, but it yeah. also has a communal side. So Deen is a set of ideas, uh, but Milla would be not only those ideas, but also the community that follows. It is interesting that uh, now Milla would then be, I think, more properly translated as idiomatically translated as culture. So when the West comes to the Muslim world, they do not bring Christianity, but they do bring democracy. They want us to be somewhat like them, not as necessarily religious like them, but at least in some sense begin to mimic their larger cultural values and institutional order. There you can distinguish between the deen of Christianity and the milla of the European civilization. Mm -hmm. Whereas we Muslims do not have that distinction yet. So we cannot offer anything uh, other than our deen as synonymous with our milla. Mm -hmm. I, I, maybe that set of distinctions might help you. So, so, so translate, uh, to translate this for, for everyone else, essentially, uh, let, me, let me know if, if, if my translation of you is correct. That when we're speaking of Mila in the context of the West and in, spe in specifically Christianity, Christianity in terms of what it addresses is not addressing the whole experience of life as, as much as or as meticulously as Islam does. That uh, in Christianity, the heart of it is the church, is the population of the Christians, but then render to God what is to God, render to Caesar what is to Caesar. And so the dean would, would possibly be outside of the church in secular Europe. Uh, whereas in Islam, it's harder to figure out where to put that line because there is, you know, Islam in terms of Sharia is covering everything. Is that sort of what you're saying? Uh, I, I think I think so. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, I would also say that, in terms of Milla, can become secondary, not as important. Uh, so if you're inviting somebody to Milla, then the Dean part of it, the theology, the religious practice, is not central, though it's there in the background, uh, configuring what you're offering as your Milla. Yeah, and so so when I was speaking of Mila and the distinction in my understanding of Mila and Deen, Mila, I would emphasize more on what we would call Ibadah. And I like your term culture. So also to translate this for everyone else, today we often distinguish this is religion, this is culture, but that's more of a modern separation. You know, whereas religion and culture were essentially the same thing. Okay. Um, there were a bunch of other questions and reflections. So, Olfat, you raised this. Uh, you raised this question about the word tarta. Uh, please explain. Well, I kind of follow up after. Is it approving of each other's faith and religion, or is it how we treat each other? Because I'd imagine some, like, some very conservative Muslims in Egypt can take this to like one extreme of, oh, we're supposed to be fighting Christians. What do y'all think? Uh, uh, so that they will never be pleased with you, Tarda. Um, do we mean they'll never be approval, approving of your faith? Or, you know, they will never treat you with approval? What do y'all think? Like, the way I take it is they'll never think you're okay. There's always going to be something wrong with you. And, um, 
I think Alpha is right because uh, Salahuddin Ayyubi's kingdom was in Egypt. And um, I think uh, deep hatred for the Christianity stemmed from there. Perhaps. Yeah, uh, uh, Mahan, you were saying something more? Well, I'm thinking of this in the context of pluralism. So I actually, I'm working on a paper on covenantal pluralism. Okay. And, you know, I'm trying to think about through what we talked about in terms of abrogation, supremacy, verses like this, you know, how do you arrive at a stable peace, an inner peace with the other on a permanent basis rather than a temporary pragmatic basis. So we have to get along because just where we don't have power, we're neighbors, etc. But if we had power, you know, then we would not be maybe equal on equal footing. And we couldn't allow that. So, and there's so much you know, to think about here. But a verse like this, you know, makes you wonder because it sets up. Now, one way to deal with this would be to say, okay, this is talking about like you restricted the meaning of Bani Israel to the Bani Israel in the Prophet's, you know, milieu in his orbit. And so we shouldn't take them to be the Bani Israel of today. Would the same thing apply here? And then you have a restricted meaning. Um, and then it's an interesting question on that I think we've discussed briefly previously is um, what does the verse mean for us today? So those are the things you know I'm thinking of. Feel free to. Mm -hmm. Well, so the question that you, you have me wondering, and I wonder, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, in the long term, and by long term I'm saying 500 years, is it possible for a plural society, pluralist society to remain pluralistic? What do you think? Well, for us to be theologically at peace with a pluralistic society. Okay. Narva. Yeah, Narva. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So, be, be <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, so is that possible? Like yeah. with integrity in the faith? Yeah. Okay. That's the question I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying 500 years, but I'm saying today. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that the risk is, I think it is very possible for people to live very easily in a pluralistic society, but there's always going to be the risk of those people at the extremes who will, uh, who will, especially in downturns, especially economic downturns that will, that will subvert the whole thing. But I think from a theological, like a mainstream theological perspective, yeah, I think it's absolutely possible but there are always going to be people who are hovering around who will ruin it all. You know, I'm thinking like Bosnia, you know, they were together for, I mean, a lot of it was under Ottoman rule, but uh, they were together for a long time. And then in the 1990s, you know, it all gets ruined you know, by a minority. Just a small piece of reflection. Uh, yes. Use the word milieu. Is it possible that the word milieu came from the word milla? Oh, deep. Which would then explain how to translate one from the other. Mm. Hey, Mossab, what do you think? Did the word milla come from milieu? Maybe that's another research thing you can do for us. Mossab's probably looking up the word milieu. Uh, Mossab, what do you think uh, as far as uh, the same question that I posed to, to Dr. Mahan? Do you think it's possible for a pluralistic society to last? But just, you know, to last is one thing, to be justified. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm, because you can have a negative peace, which is the absence of war, mm -hmm. because, you know, like the Cold War, but then you can have a, a positive peace, which is, you know, not, not simply the absence of war, mm -hmm. but where structural conditions are such that, um, there's resilience in the system against war should there be negative kinds of trigger events. And so 
we could have a pragmatic kind of peace just because, you know, economic interests and these types of things and just neighborly, you know, our survival all depends on it. But when those things are not there, does our theology justify in when we confront adversity and when we confront, you know, uh, precarity that the theology will hold the pluralism together because it's justified in some kind of reading of scripture that's the that's the bigger question i think uh through an islamic lens uh i think that's absolutely possible and part of the reason i'm suggesting that is because we do give a place to these other traditions uh i think it's harder for us like bernard lewis's criticism is what that muslims are really good in trying to figure out a place for christians and jews they're not very good at figuring out a place for, you know, people who claim to be Muslim, you know, with alternate, you know, theologies, you know. Um, but I do think uh, from an Islamic lens, it's absolutely possible. You know. So just one, one last thing, and then I'm going to stop. Yeah. Um, you're giving a place within our system of dominance is one thing. Mm -hmm. But having a place in which the space is negotiated on somewhat equal terms is another. And I, I'm talking about this latter condition. Because yeah. we've yeah. always given a place. Yeah, as long as we're on top. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I do believe that that is possible from our part of the bargain. Uh, I don't know, and I'm not saying it's not, I don't know that it is as possible through a Christian lens or through a Jewish lens, Hindu lens, et cetera. You know, um, through uh, actual theology to support and reinforce it, you know, without necessitating a secular superstructure. You know. But maybe I'm being idealistic. If, if the secular superstructure is justified from within their theology, then we, we, you know, we arrive at a, at a good place for them also. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, I think there's definitely space for that. I think that can happen. Um, even then, I still uh, believe that even in such an uh, environment where you have theological support, you will still have those factions, you know, uh, that will uh, take opportunity from, from uh, societal struggles and attempt to ruin everything. So, uh, other questions and thoughts? So, yeah, so what's up? Do we live in, a, we do live in a pluralistic society, although I suggest that it is a secular superstructure. Somebody was speaking just now, Adnan? Yeah, I, the, oh, there goes my, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the present world, given the, given the political order divided amongst nation states and whatnot, I do not think it's possible the type of Lada land that Mahanbai is thinking of where <laughs> equal trans. I mean, yes, we would, uh, I, you know, I- There's I, nicer vocabulary you could use than Lada land. At least you call it Mahanbai, so, so that- yeah. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed that type of Lada land in the, here in the United States. Right, it was, uh, you know, I used to go to work wearing a kufi. You can no longer do that. Uh, so yeah, there are, there would be pockets of that type of world, but I think the more practical thing is, you do need to have a dominant structure or a dominant culture, which allows for you know, maximum possible space within its uh, within its worldview for others. And I think that's the best we can hope for practically. Uh, beyond that, I don't think that you can ever have a, a situation in which uh, different powerful groups can meet each other exactly as equal. I, I, that's, human condition just does not allow for that. Yeah. Too nasty and brutish uh, type of creatures in that sense. I would suggest that if we take your point to its full conclusion, then it becomes an endorsement of the caste system. Where every single population in the society has a specific role in a hierarchy. What do you think? Well, I think maybe not a caste system, but a class system, which we already do have. 
Mm-hmm. So you know when uh, when the when the modern world left the caste system behind, uh, what was called the society of orders, we still landed into a class system. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we've had attempts uh, in previous century to get rid of the class system, also to have a classless society. That was the communist experiment. That didn't work out. Uh, and it seems to me that Quran is very very pragmatic on these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I. I would love, I have diligently, I'm always searching for that, uh, for those principles of how to bring about that la-la land. But pragmatism always brings brings me down to ground. Uh, That perhaps this is just, you know, one of those inherent contradictions in in our human existence. You're not going to, and uh, and you're not going to find your Jannah till you get to Jannah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think any any of us is arguing, you know, a land where everyone's hugging each other and I love you, you love me and all that stuff, right? I don't think we're, that's, I mean, that is for Jannah and or Barney. But the, uh, even my point, I think I am arguing from, even though it is idealist, it's still, I'm still being somewhat pragmatist, that I'm suggesting you can, through theology, set up a social contract, you know, uh, in today's language, like a constitution, uh, that parties are agreeing to, you know, in which you have some sort of sharing of power, alternating of power, which today is Republican and Democrat. Uh, and, and uh, but still, there are going to be those people who are going to seek to subvert it for their, their own evolution, uh, elevation. But nevertheless, it, it becomes a, uh, a speculative conversation. Um, a lot of land is in Northwest Frontier, Pakistan, nice. Okay, uh, Stephanie Mirza, when you have competing Dawah-driven groups, harmony is going to be temporary, even if that is for 100 years. Yeah, I think that's also a very, very important point. And you have, you've reminded me also that the best of generations lasted how long? Anybody? The best of generations that the world will ever see. 30 years? after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, including a massive war or series of battles at the beginning, right after the prophet's death, peace be upon him, and then a massive civil war uh, about 20 years later, and then further after that. And and so this is more related to Adnan's point that you're not going to have paradise on earth, that even there, where you have the people who are directly trained by the prophet, peace be upon him, that he himself is saying this is the best of generations. Their polity lasted 30 years. And, and so that uh, 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 in 100 years a year will be the... <laughs> so Omar, I, I missed the one point. What, what this La La Land one is? Can Ma- okay. Adnan can repeat it? <laughs> so basically, so... No, no, I didn't I'm just, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing my hand. movie okay. that just came out, it, it, it won a couple of awards, La La Land. Watch the movie and you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then it'll be overtaken by, by the moonlight, <laughs> the crescent. Okay, anyway, so so yeah, uh, Stephanie Mirza, I do agree with you uh, on, on your point. Uh, let's see other questions. Sadia, uh, Yehud and Nasara will never be your friends, paraphrased. Uh, I mean, so, so when we look at all the depictions of Ahlul Kitab, Yehud, and Nasara in the Quran, we get like this whole spectrum of everything. And even in Surah Ali Imran, I believe it is, uh, rather than Surah Al-Ma'idah, it even says, you know, those people are closest to you who say that we're Christians, or is that Surah Al-Ma'idah? But then right after that, you know, that, you know, the, the Yehud will, will never... Uh, will never like you. And we have literally, if we put it all together, we have a whole spectrum of, of personalities. And I, I think what you're saying is do not take them as awliya. And this is related to Mahan's point of al-wara. Hey, Mahan, you want to you define this, this term? This is, uh, I think, a very, very big destructive term that everyone should know. Yeah, well, who who you can be friends with, who can be your allies, as opposed to who you have to, you know, maintain a distance from or can't be friends with. Mm -hmm. And so, so a lot of times this this language is used 
uh, arguing that you have to be 100% loyal to to the Muslims and 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 separate yourself from from everyone else, which uh, I think is not consistent, but also uh, very very destructive. You know. Uh, let's see other questions that I missed. I think we have everything else scrolling all the way to the top. Wait. When we say want Allah is back from all humanly claims and needs. Oh, okay, that you were talking about, um, that ayah, uh, subhanahu. Uh, oh, I like this point. Uh, Stephanie Mirza, it implies you cannot go behind Allah. I think you're talking about wherever you go, there's the face of Allah. That's pretty cool. Um, who else? I think that's uh, all the other questions. Is there a connection between 44 and 120 in using the term uh, where in 44 we talk about those scholars who recited without knowledge versus 120 reciting with its true recitation? So, so the way that I would understand it is that what's combined in the second, what's pointed out in the first ayah is they're reciting this, but they're not practicing themselves. You know? And here, the proper recitation is with belief. And belief almost always in the Quran is followed by right action, right? Iman and Amal al-Saleh. And, and so, so in the latter reference, uh, I'm inferring action driven by belief. So one is empty recitation, which could be beautiful melodious recitation, and you're even preaching on other people. And then the proper way is you are believing what you're reciting, which means you are embodying what you're reciting and practicing. That's how I read it. Any other questions or thoughts or reflections? So this is not at all binding and would probably not be starting uh, anytime soon. Who would be interested in continuing the, the course? Uh, oh, you, this is the last class, Uma? Yeah, we finished. No way. Wait. <laughs> we are not ready for that. Yeah, sorry, it's time for you all to, to move on. Time for the birds <laughs> to get out of the nest and fly away. Can we take a one week break and then come back? The, we can take it into consideration, Shilla. Okay, so because the problem starts. the problem I have every time you take a break, it's very hard for you to come back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not me, B and I saying that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I, I will figure it out, inshallah. So, uh, I'm also finishing my, my three o'clock class um, probably in the next day or two, and, and we'll see. Um, I definitely enjoy doing the class, but you know, it'd also be nice if some of you other guys started teaching some classes too, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I wanted to say something. Go for it. Thanks. So basically, um, the question that I asked about Surah Maida um, was that, um, yes, um, it could be about like loyalty to Muslims. Um, but I was thinking, could it be uh, read as a warning? Like, they're ne never going to be your friends. So watch out. Be careful in trusting them. Uh, I think... Yeah, I think that's a valid um, uh, reading of it, you know, especially based on this eye that we're looking at right now, you know, uh, as a collective body. Uh, right, I'm, right. I'm much more cautious about accepting that as a reading at an individual level. Individual, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, but as a collective body, I think that works. Thanks. Any other questions? else. Okay, inshallah, I actually have to uh, run to the next class. My daughter is saying, where is the professor? So I get to run there. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirika natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirika natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirika natubi lake. As long as there's pandemic, there's pandemic around class. Nice. Okay, may Allah tell you where do you all, inshallah? And we may or may not see each other again.
Don't. Anyway, okay. Okay, listen, I'm really going after a lot of people again.